The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Check one, check two. That's me. Yeah, throw those cans on. Move that mic around for yourself. Check it, check it, check. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. I'll engineer it from over here. Awesome. And then you can uh, you can host it from over there. Okay. <laughs> Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is huge. Episode 1000. I mean, come on. How could we have made it to a thousand episodes? It seems like it's only been one day, yet it seems like it's been years and years and years, 10 years almost to be exact, but we're celebrating this huge milestone with a very special guest. I'll tell you who that is, although you already know if you read the headline and we're celebrating the highly anticipated and critically acclaimed sometimes Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, listen, I'm in Athens, Greece, man. I, uh, uh, it's about 119,000 degrees where I'm at exactly right now. Anyhow, I hope you're doing well. Uh, everybody's doing well. Listen, uh, uh, a girlfriend of ours uh, went on vacation to Jamaica. I was staying at this hotel, and uh, she came downstairs for breakfast. And sat down, and she's like, "Do you, do you, uh, to the waiter, do you, do you have any uh, tea? And uh, the waiter said, uh, no woman, no chai. Thank you very much. Goodbye. No woman, no chai. Bye. <laughs> I always love when Duff has to explain his jokes. I mean, that one was pretty funny, but oh my gosh, is that ever a long way to go for the punchline? Uh, Duff did say he's sweating to death in Athens, Greece, so we'll chalk that up to heat stroke, hopefully. But thanks to Duff for helping us celebrate 1,000 episodes and giving us the joke of the week for over six years now. And thanks to all of you for making this possible. We would not be here if it wasn't for you listening to and supporting Talk is Jericho for nearly 10 years. TIJ started in December of 2013. It's been a blast. So many great moments and times. People always say, what was your favorite guest? I mean, William Shatner twice was amazing. Shatner doesn't do any podcasts except for for his boy, Chris Jericho, which he said to me. Larry King, not with us anymore. Uh, I remember the greatest day uh, in podcast life for me was interviewing Hulk Hogan and Paul Stanley within the same week. I think I've had like 15 or 16 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, uh, actors with stars on, uh, on the Hollywood Hall of Fame, obviously some of the greatest wrestlers of all time. I mean, the annual... Uh, horror movie uh, show with The Last Drive-In. So many great things. The, the album, classic album clashes, the classic movie clashes. 
watch alongs, so many great watch alongs from Sleepaway Camp 2 to um, <laughs> Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2 to Kiss Meets the Founder of the Park. I mean, so many great episodes and great times. And thanks to all of you for listening, whether you were here for one episode or 1,000. We thank you and we love you. This is it, episode 1,000. Uh, also looking forward to Fozzie's huge show coming up, Spotlight on London, Friday, August 25th, 02 Forum, Kentish Town in London, England. Massive Weapons and the Chris Barris Band will be joining us for the show. FozzieRock.com is tickets for the O2 Forum. Uh, come rock with us in London and come see Fozzie on Friday night and come to AEW all in Sunday, August 27th at Wembley. Once again, Fozzie on Friday. Catch us Forum, O2 Forum in London. Go to FozzieRock.com for all ticket and informations for VIPs as well. All right, here we go. We had Howie Mandel on a couple days ago, episode 1000A. Here it is, 1000B, the official 1000th episode. I had to pull out the big guns for this one. He's one of the original kings of podcasting. He started podcasting before anybody really knew what podcasting was, including me, and I've been doing this for almost 10 years. He said he barely knew what it was. Talking about comedian Mark Marin, host of the immensely popular WTF podcast. We talk about how he got started in his garage back in 2009. Some of his incredible guests over the years, like Paul McCartney, so jealous. Paul McCartney, you fucking kidding me? And President Barack Obama as well, super huge. Obama came to Mark's garage to record with him. Wait to hear Mark tell the story. He also talks about his stand-up career, his friendship and mentorship with Sam Kinison. He's got pretty wild stories from hanging out with Sam, the late, great Sam Kinison. Mark also discusses his acting career, including his critically acclaimed role on Glow, what it was like for him to be immersed into the world of professional wrestling, how he didn't understand it, but now he's become an AEW fan. We talk about that as well. We talk about life on the road as a stand-up comedian. We talk about rock and roll. We talk about all things Mark Marin recorded in his garage in Los Angeles. Thanks to Mark for being here, and thanks to all of you for being here Talk is Jericho, episode 1000. We got a new logo. We got the same attitude, the same great guests, and we'll see you for another thousand episodes right here. But right now, Mark Marin, episode 1000 of Talk is Jericho, starting now. No questions needed. You don't do a big thing? You don't do a big intro? I really don't, Mark. Okay. Because people know what they're getting into when they see Talk is Jericho with Mark Marin here. That's right. But do you... uh you have music you have a music intro i got a little music intro I'm, yeah. i feel bad i haven't uh, i haven't uh, listened to all thousand of your part <laughs> podcast <laughs> well yeah. yours must be pretty much in the thousands as well yeah we're up to around i think we're in like close to 1500 maybe that's too far ahead because yours was one of the kind of the first that i can ever remember people talking about well yeah it was 2009 two a week new shows every monday and thursday mm-hmm. uh like clockwork never a repeat mm-hmm. come rain snow but I'm the same way because people need the consistency of it, right? I think so. I think that's the whole thing. And not to give them so much that uh, they feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we kind of originally thought the idea was that, well, if we do two shows that are about an hour to an hour and a half, that's a pretty that's a week's worth of drive time right. or commute time. Right. And I think that was part of uh, the, uh, the, the sort of idea. And then I think also... Um, how many? How many you want to do, man? I mean, we're doing interviews. Right. I mean, you know, you got to get people. Well, you that's the talk thing. To people. 
Yeah. And you live in LA, so you can have people come to your garage yeah, studio, well, I, famous I, studio. I do that. Right. I mean, during COVID, we did the Zoom stuff, but I don't like it. Yeah. You know, people, it's it kind of spoiled people because now people are like, can we do Zoom? And we don't do it. Yeah. Unless, you know, obviously, unless somebody, I don't even know what names we, we would uh, allow that to happen for. Maybe uh, Meryl Streep. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, somebody we can't even get that we, we don't... Uh, don't understand why, but if she was like, I can do it tomorrow on Zoom, I, I think I would have to. You'd have to. But that's the, thing. The, the one thing was that I yeah. noticed about Zoom that was great was before that I would rarely do phone interviews because those are terrible. Can't do them. Can't do them because you can't see the person's face. Right. And if they're thinking of something or right. they're slow speaking or whatever it may be. Yeah. So at least with the Zoom, you can still see each other's face. I think we eventually figured out how to do it okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the interface we were using sound quality wise worked out. Right. I think that we were able to get some guests that I don't think I would have gotten ever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of odd interviews that happened because a lot of these people were bored. They were at home. Uh, right. Which made it in some ways a little more candid. I'm not sure exactly how, I mean, like you and I are sitting across from each other. That makes a difference for the rhythm and for, mm -hmm. you, you know, what you were saying before, you can sort of feel where they're coming from or what they're, you know, you, know, you right. can read them. But with Zoom, a lot of these bigger stars, uh, you know, some of them who I, I would, I don't know that I ever would have gotten, certainly Jodie Foster was a surprise and that interview was amazing. Yeah. And I don't think Nicole Kidman would have happened. And it was funny with Nicole Kidman because she comes on, she's trying to get on Zoom and then I see Keith Urban lean in <laughs> to, to just the machines. And, you know, I, I think, I don't know that uh, we necessarily would have gotten Kate Blanchett or, or, uh, or the other Kate. But, uh, Hudson. Uh, Jackson? No, no uh, Kate Winslet. <laughs> oh, Kate Winslet. Kate Jackson would have been fine, too, though. Sure. Kate uh, Jackson from Charlie's Angels? Of course. Absolutely. Is she still around? I, I hope so. I wonder. We should track her down. I don't know. I know some of them have passed. <laughs> I think she's still with us. Oh, good. Okay. I think so. Um, but, that, but that's the thing, though. So my show's been on, I think, since about 2012, but you're even yeah. three years prior to that. Right. Now, talk about what the landscape was for podcasting then in 2009, because I remember when I first started, I still wasn't completely sure what a podcast was. I thought it was something that kids do in their basement. I had no idea idea how huge and expansive it was then never mind now when there's literally a million podcasts yeah i think a lot of them are falling away right. I, I think it seems like the bigger streamers or the bigger satellite or the bigger podcast sort of networks or people that accumulated a bunch of podcasts i know spotify laid off a yep. couple hundred people and stitcher shut down so i think uh, i think the contraction is upon us and you know among all those millions of podcasts that are out there there are many people there's just sort of you know these three show attempts at things yeah I, I don't know how many that is but when we started we were coming out of a radio gig and uh we were fired from this it was a streaming audio gig or streaming video thing that we did at air america but there was you, you were it, streaming was not really a thing yet no so we couldn't get people to, it was a it was a travesty mm. and we knew it wouldn't last but we had a year deal with them so when they finally fired us and they didn't really throw us out of the building because they were uh i guess decent liberal folk they're like, well, let them play out their contract. They can hang out if they want. So we were kind of hijacked the studios at night because you, you, we knew the night tech. And we started bringing them in, bringing guests up the uh, freight elevator and stuff. But at that time, I just knew it was a possibility. And I knew that I could do this kind of mic. Mm -hmm. And I, and Brendan, who you know, yep. is kind of a, a genius when it comes to production and other things. So I said, we should do this if we can figure it out. 
And at that time, I mean, Corolla had moved from radio onto podcast. Yeah. Jimmy Pardo was around. G- uh, Jimmy Dore was around. I don't know. Maybe Benson was before us. But I think I think Joe came a little after us. I think Hardwick came a little after us. I mean, there were podcasters around, but it was definitely not a thing. It was not that accessible to people. People didn't know about them. They knew about Corolla because he moved them over from radio. Mm-hmm. So it took a while for it to kind of pick up as a medium and for all of us to really figure out uh, how to make money at it. Right. Because like you said, at first people had no idea what it was. I remember when I first started doing it, like oh, Ozzy doesn't do podcasts. He still wanted to do like the radio hits, you know, the 10 minute hits on KLOS and realizing that those are so small and so yeah. localized. Now, of course, everyone understands just how big of a medium podcast can be. Right. And now, but unfortunately, we've come full circle to where people are like, oh, don't tell me another podcast. Yes. You know, who's like, how are you going to make yours be uh, relevant to them? Mm -hmm. Did you get Ozzy? I never got him. Did you? No. I, you know, it it almost happened, but now I don't know what it would be like for an hour. Yeah. You you have to keep these, you have to kind of think about that thing. Right. You know, can he talk? uh, You know, how, how is it going to go? But of course I try. I think we had an opportunity to do geezer, but it didn't happen. Well, I had Tony. Oh, really? So that was badass. How was that good? It was amazing. Yeah. Because once again, see, see, sometimes you get guests on, you'll know this, that don't understand the concept of being on the podcast that you actually have to talk and tell stories and be a little bit more... Right. Musicians aren't always doing that. Right. But Tony was one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Because I don't know how many podcasts he's really done. Yeah. And as you know as well, it takes the first five or 10 minutes to kind of unwrap the onion. Yeah. And then you've got the real stories and the real guys. Sure, yeah, that's once kind of, they relax. Yeah, and I think people understand, or people can relate to guys like us, you and I, who have yeah. done 10,000 interviews, yeah. where you know right away if it's going to be a good interview or a bad interview, just where the interviewer sits well, down. Well, yeah, well, how much work you're going to have to do. And But I've right. learned that over time that, you know, even if it's not great for you, it might be great for the fans. Sure. You know, that, you know, whatever your sort of expectations are or or whatever you want yeah. out of a guest, it might not happen. But, you know, y- you should keep that to yourself unless it was really awful, because a lot of times fans of these people have never heard them talk at all mm-hmm. or 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 don't know uh, that you're not having a good time. Do you ever listen back to any of your shows? No, no, no. Okay. And so, not unless Brendan uh, thinks he did an amazing thing or amazing <laughs> job. Like if Brendan goes like, you know, I really worked hard on this. I'll, I'll check it out. But usually you know, that poor guy has listened to more of me than I have. See, but I always listen back because I try to, like you said, sometimes when we're hosting the show, you got to keep the plate spinning. You got to engineer. You got to think of what's coming up next or what did somebody say that's very interesting that you want to continue down with. Yeah. So I like listening back just to kind of hear because like you said sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll do a show and go well, that was okay but then when I hear it back just as with fresh ears it's like that was actually a really good show sure I, I that would probably help me but I don't do it yeah you know I don't uh, I usually stay pretty focused mm-hmm. when, and I know when you know there have been times where I've told Brendan like I don't know if I felt great about that and he's like yeah I don't it doesn't read that way right except the last time when we did Ben Kingsley a couple weeks ago it was horrendous and <laughs> I had to mention it whether or not people would have responded to it or not I felt that I was fundamentally disrespected so I just had to say that this wasn't easy for me and he clearly wanted no part of a real conversation interesting so you knew it was bad while you're doing it how can you rescue it or sometimes there's just no way of saying well, it wasn't it. bad in that way it was bad in the way that he really was not he didn't want to talk to me mm. he, he he wanted to talk but he didn't want to talk to me mm. so he just wanted to sort of like you know get me you know controlled 
and then do his monologue about this or that. Gotcha. I was able to kind of guide him, but he had this narrative he wanted to do, and he just didn't want to engage on a personal level, which is a problem for me. Mm-hmm. So, and I felt you could hear it that you know he was he was kind of strong arming me and trying to sort of stay in control of the thing, and I just chose. Because I could be like, you know, I don't need this. It's like, look, man, if you don't want to fucking talk to me, yeah. we don't have to do this, Sir Ben. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but I, I I allowed myself to sort of put it aside and just listen to him because he is, he has, con- you know, he's telling a story, mm-hmm. whether he's told it a million times and I don't know. But it, I found it moving and it was fine. But it was, it was not a conversation. What was the episode a few years ago where you had you you apologized at the beginning for a, for a guest that did not want to talk to you? To cut? Was it Jerry Lewis or? Who, oh yeah, Jerry. Was Lewis. it Jerry Lewis? Tell us that story because I remember listening to this one. Going, I don't know if it was he didn't want to talk to me. It was one of those situations where not unlike you today coming over here, I went to some place where he was doing some interviews. It was a hotel. I can't remember. It was in Beverly Hills. I don't remember which one. It might have been the Beverly Hills Hotel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, he was a hundred years old, right? But it was okay. Um, but he had it in his head that he was only going to do a half hour. Gotcha. So at a half hour, he's like, "I'm done," and I was like, "You're done." He's like, "Yeah, that's it." And it was just getting going, but he just—that's where he was at. Yeah. And he's a hundred, <laughs> so you know, I was more apologizing for the abrupt ending. Yeah, yeah. Y- you know, but I think we got something. It was okay. It's Jerry Lewis. It's pretty sure, cool, but you yeah. know, he—it is, but you know, he's—he was kind of a. A difficult old man, and uh, but it would have been good if if I'd been able to have another a little more time. See, I had that with uh, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. I had Rick and his son Dax, and after about thirty minutes, Rick said, "I'm done," and just walked out. So I continued rudely. Um, not rudely. He's a pretty cool guy, but just more like matter of factly. Yeah, like there's no debate. I've had enough. So what I did was I just edited. Edited him later on in the show, so it seemed like he was there the whole time. Oh, I so see. So instead of him being there just yeah. the 30, it seemed like he was there the whole 60, because Dax stayed the whole 60. So that's kind of how I remedied that, because if he just gets up and leaves halfway through, I still got yeah, another 30 it. minutes left, right? Well, yeah, and it's up to us, you know, how much time we <laughs> we right. put these things up. But you weren't talking to him as if he was there, were you? It's like, well, I no. guess, uh, what's the matter, Rick? You don't want to say <laughs> no, anything? No, no, no. I just put, mm-hmm. like, stuff that he said and, and staggered the questions so that he was throughout the show. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty smart. Well, a little show business action. Yeah, it is. And now everybody knows it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah he revealed years it. Ago. So Rick will know. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So just a few more things about your podcast. Who are the, some of the biggest guests you've had? There's one of mine I want to talk to you about, but you've had some really big ones. Well, I had a president, a sitting president, and that was a big deal. That's insane. How did you do that? How did you get him booked? I don't know, it man. I, I, it was, uh, Obama was, I think that it was his last term, and and there were fans of the show among his crew, among his people, yeah. among his staff, and thought it would be a good idea, uh, or, or thought they would approach us with it. And, you know, we were, of course, I mean, it, it turns out to be quite an ordeal, to, to have a sitting president over to your house. 
your small house in so Highland Park. So he's got a whole security well, contingent. Yeah, dude. I mean, they put yeah to send people out a couple weeks ahead of time wow. to scout out where they were going to put the snipers to figure out Jeez. how to secure the perimeter. You know how how they were going to clear the streets, how they were going to fly him in. You know because he was down at the Beverly Hills Hilton, I think, and they chose to use the Air Force Two or whatever they call the chopper. And they brought, you know, they flew him over to the Rose Bowl, <laughs> which was five minutes from my house. So wow. They, they didn't back up traffic for the entire L.A. area. <laughs> they were they were considerate. They flew him in the helicopter. And it was funny because, you know, the day of, you know, the snipers were on my neighbor's roof. He was thrilled to, to be part of it. I'm sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had about 15 Secret Service guys. They'd set up this box in my second bedroom that was uh, for communications if all communications went down. God. So, if the, you know, if the bomb went off. You know, he'd be able to. He's at Marin's house. Yeah, he was in my house. I had nothing to do with it. And then they had like four, you know, about you know, twelve, fifteen guys uh, there, and they had, had tented the driveway and gotten all the sh- cars off of my street, so there was no open perimeter. You know, it was, uh, and then we set up a bunch of listening stations on the uh, on the deck, and it was pretty great. You know, and they had some sort of thing in the in the garage, some sort of flak blanket, mm-hmm. if something was going on. And then there was, I was facing him. And they had a Secret Service guy behind me, but that was it. But it was, you know, it was a big day. It was heavy. Sure. Tight hour. And I did have to, we got pretty loose, but I did have to structure an hour because it mm. was a president and I didn't want to talk policy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do the kind of interview that I do, but we did have to talk some stuff that was happening. And, uh, you know, he was very candid. And, and the amazing thing about him is that uh, we had the edit. He oh, didn't, wow. like, he, he, his people didn't say, like, you're going to have to run it through us first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they trusted the guy. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> to, to handle himself. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that was the, the way that went, and it was a big deal. Uh, I don't know that a sitting president has, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe Biden did something, a small appearance, but I don't know that a sitting president have done, has done one You know, it's then. interesting to me, because I had the opportunity for, to do Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. Uh, in... Trump Towers in New York City, whatever yeah. it was. Same thing. You go down there, and there's a big open picture window, and all the Secret Service agents are yeah. standing there. Yeah. And of course, especially now with politics and yeah. people, so many people were very angry that I had Donald Trump Jr. And yeah. I'm not a political person either way. I just, as a journalist, I mean, that's kind of what we are as a journalist, as entertainers. Yeah. I thought it's pretty fucking cool to go to the damn place where the Secret Service agents were there. You know, sure. it's kind of a good well, opportunity. It really becomes about you know. With any of these guys, you know, especially if they're campaigning or whatnot, and and Junior's always campaigning. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of a, he's a character, but he's a troll, you know? Sure. But nonetheless, the issue with doing those kind of interviews is that do you want to use your platform to service anybody? So, you know, I'll talk my talk and I'll talk my shit about politics, but when you get involved with somebody... Who, you know, you're not going to have sort of a, a, a loose sort of like, what was it like being brought up in that area? You like, you know, he just seems like he's lit up all the time mm-hmm. and you're going to be servicing his talking points. Well, yeah, I, I think it was more of just the experience of being sure. able to do but, it. Well, yeah. I thought it was cool. You know, yeah, I mean? definitely. Yeah. But I'm just telling you why we don't get involved in the dialogue. Like, you Agreed. know, because people are like, why don't you have RFK Jr. on? I'm like, why? You know, like, why would I do that? Mm. Because a lot of times I learned this at Air America that they won't even have a conversation with you. They will move the conversation around to where they want to where they want so they can say what they want to say. Mm-hmm. And people always used to ask us, well, are you going to have Trump on if he wants to go? And we were like, yeah, sure. If he if he plays by the same rules as Obama, as Obama if, did. Yeah. if we get final edit. Yeah. 
You know, uh, but it was never really going to happen. There was no way that guy was going to do it. Right, right. The final edit, yeah. Let's talk about McCartney. Yeah. That's one of my white whales that he hasn't done a lot of podcasts, and you're one of them that he did. Well, that was great. Uh, and that was because you're li- a rock and roll guy. Totally. Yeah. But that was a live show. The weird thing is, I'll be honest with you, is that it was a live show. It was at a Capitol Records event. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and he was the guest of honor at this Capitol Records event. And they asked me to, to interview him in front of the, the audience. Oh, and, nice. and the agreement was that I could use it on my podcast. Smart. But but a couple of things that were kind of interesting. Look, I love the Beatles. Who doesn't love the Beatles? But really, I'm a John guy. I mean, through and through. Mm-hmm. So there was part of me that was sort of like, all right, I'll, yeah, I'll do Paul. You know? <laughs> but uh, but the thing with Paul was um, he's a guy that's you know very uh, savvy. I mean, mm-hmm. he's been a public personality since savvy. he was like you know in his teens. Yeah. But there was a couple of moments that I I always talk about, like bef- when I met him backstage, I, I they they introduced us the guy from Capitol. And I said to him, I said, so I, I hear the Beatles are off the table, right? No Beatles talking. He's like, <laughs> okay, very funny. So, <laughs> but two things happened on that show that I thought were fairly substantial. Yeah, he's funny and it mm. was great. And a live thing, you know, you're working different muscles because yep. I'm, I'm going to be going for laughs. He's going to be going for laughs. But I was the one, we talked about Manson. And, Interesting. Yeah. And I was the one that told him that Manson was dead. He didn't know Manson was dead. Oh, wow. So I was the guy that broke him the news. <laughs> And and I asked him about, you know, what happened and how, you know, Manson sort of appropriated Helter Skelter yeah. and all that. And, you know, he's like, uh, well, you know, we didn't have PR at that. You know, it wasn't, you know, there was no way to manage a PR crisis like that. Right? right. But the other thing that was great, and I asked this to old guys all the time, because a lot of them think they're doing their best work now. You know, like if you, they, I don't know if they really do, but they they do. They some of them, you know, they have to think that they should. Yeah, they should think that. But stage. he was, you know, he was promoting Egypt Station, which was terrible, and <laughs> so I was being kind of a smartass. And I said, look, you know, I talked to a lot of guys of your generation, and they think that they're doing their best work now. I mean, do you? feel that way and he just he takes a beat and he goes i was in the Beatles." <laughs> <laughs> he says that's a pretty high bar <laughs> so that was pretty great yeah well, i mean just the fact you got to spend that time with him you know well i spent time with some pretty uh, impressive music guys roger waters was mm, was wow. kind of that was intense because he's another one where it's like he doesn't really want to talk about pink floyd or david gilmore but within five minutes he's you know he's talking about pink floyd and throwing gilmore on the bus yeah. and and then, you know, there have been, who else have I had? I've talked to, I, it's weird, the musicians. Billy Gibbons mm-hmm. was great. He's great. He's great, man. And he played, a, he brought a cigar box, because I used to have them play. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I'm not a studio engineer, but I used to just stick a mic in their guitar and <laughs> one in their face. I did Jason Isbell in a hotel room years ago uh, on his first tour, I think, uh, after South, uh, North, was it Southeastern, is that the name of that record? But I was in his hotel room and it was late at night. We'd both been on a show together and he was exhausted. And he did a version of his song, Elephant, which is a great song. Mm-hmm. And I mic'd him. I held both mics. I held one to his mouth <laughs> and one to his guitar. And I was just kneeling <laughs> D- during yeah, the song. Yeah. And it's it's great. But yeah, musicians are tricky because they don't really have to talk. And sometimes you got to get them talking. I just talked to Lucas Nilsson, mm-hmm. who was great. Uh, but I, I like talking to musicians. But oh, but Billy brought a cigar box guitar which is a little weird thing. It's an actual cigar box with a neck yeah. and a slide. And he just played this this Ballad of Billy the Kid thing. And it's one of the, my favorite things ever, man. He always, uh, every time I've met him, he always gives me presents. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Give you a picture of pick. Here's, here's Hendrix from '69 on cassette, and he has his little this African hat. Yeah, where he gives you a pamphlet of what the meaning of it is. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he gave me uh, his pick and, yeah. and a picture, a signed thing. Yeah, yeah. Just a yeah. generous guy. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about some of the comedians that you work with. Because obviously your stand-up comedian sure. uh, uh, career has been very, very long and expansive. <laughs> yeah. And one of the guys that I know that you worked with, and, and maybe if he was a mentor or he was a, was a, a compatriot of yours, was Sam Kinison. Sammy. Don't get a yeah. lot of stories about Sam in these days. Tell, tell us a little bit about him. Well, I've told this story a million times about the, the time Sam pissed on my bed. But like the, <laughs> but yeah, I was a doorman at the comedy store in 87. Jeez. So, you know, and I was like 22. And I kind of got involved with that crew. You know, he had this kind of, you know, Sam had this, you know, this posse, this gang of dudes that he used to tour with and he used to hang out with. You know, at the time it was like Carlo, Carl LeBeau was one of them. And, and then there were these, uh, there were always these other cats around. There were Coke dealers around. But when I got to the store, you know, I wasn't a huge Kennison fan. You know, I'd seen him once and I just thought it was a gimmick. Mm-hmm. And I'd met Carl his best friend and opening act uh, before I met Sam at the store. And then when Sam got there, you know, I was a door guy at the store. He was a door guy at the store. And, you know, he kind of initiated me into some sort of uh, Sam cult. You know, we, we, the first time I met him, we were up at the house. I was living in the Crest Hill, which is the house that Mitzi Shore owned up behind the comedy store. She used to put comics up there. She was the owner of the club. Yeah. Sure, man. And, uh, you know, me and Sam just went one on one with like, a, you know, a couple of grams of blow <laughs> and just sort of like, you know, just looking at me, telling me the way it was. And it was very funny because like I didn't know the guy and we're doing blow and we run out of blow. It's the middle of the fucking night. And he's like, you know, we got to go get more blow. And I'm like, all right, OK. You know, and it was like, where are we going? And we get in the car and he's wasted. And, uh, you know, he's like drunk and coked up. And we're driving down uh, Sunset at like 3.30 in the morning to this Coke dealer's house who I don't know. <laughs> and uh, he starts kind of passing out a little bit. And then he wakes up and goes, I don't even know you. You could kill me. And I'm like, all right, where are we going, dude? <laughs> so we get to this apartment building on uh, on uh, on Crescent Heights. And this guy, Greg, so we, you know, Kenneth is buzzing this guy, and you just hear this guy waking up going, like, what, hello? And he's like, it's me, man. You got anything? We're coming up. <laughs> you know, so we go up there, and this guy's in his bathrobe, and he's like, just be cool. My roommate's sleeping. And we go into this guy's bedroom, and he's going to give us some blow. And then Sam's like, got any booze? You know, and, and for some reason, this guy only had miniatures, right? So he gives Sam this uh, a couple of those miniature vodkas from, like, a plane. <laughs> And Sam's just sitting on this floor with this miniature, kind of drinking out of a miniature. He looked like a giant. You know, he's like, just drinking this miniature. And then he sort of passes out. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to take off. And then I'll never forget it, because this is this was Hollywood at that time, as you know. He said, well, you, you're taking him with him. He's not pulling a Belushi in my apartment. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's very nice. You're, you're a real good friend. Yeah. So like, now i got to drag Sam back to where I'm living. 
and put him on the floor. He used to sweep on the floor all the time. He liked sweeping on the floor. I'll tell that story. Mm. You know, he just, you know, he liked sweeping face down on the floor. I don't mm. know why. It didn't matter where it was. He preferred it, it seemed. <laughs> but yeah, I, I knew Sam for that year, a uh, little less than a year. And I, I got in trouble with drugs because I, I was uh, not sleeping enough and doing a lot of blow. And we would go at it because, you know, at that time, I think it was Monday night was no cover night at the store. So all the freaks would come to see Sam. That was really his big night. Mm -hmm. Like all the people come down from the Roxy, rockers, weirdos. It was, it was nuts. And it was sort of my job to kind of set up the house for the party. So he'd give me a few hundred bucks and I have to go out and buy a bunch of, you know, pints and, and cigarettes and mixers and all this shit, hide them around the house because I knew it would go from Monday night till like Wednesday <laughs> and you wanted to be able to stash shit so not everyone would drink it because yeah. it was all, it was going to get down to a core group of fucking weirdos <laughs> who were still up for two days. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was really... That was the way it was. Yeah, that was that scene. That was the scene. So it was like that for comedy. The same was for was for rock and roll, even for pro wrestling, where it was just the the hard drugs, lots of partying, late eighties, early nineties, right? That's right. Yeah, it was the whole Roxy scene, and there was a like at well, I oh the end of that story, right? I I mean, I lost my mind. I got cocaine psychosis took me, and that's when I sobered up the first time, and I guess it was eighty uh, eighty eight, and uh, took me a while to shake that shit. What's cocaine psychosis? Well, I think from sleep deprivation, oh. you you know, you you kind of have sort of a break. I mean, you do kind of lose your mind. You know, I was sort of hearing voices in my head and, mm -hmm. you know, pretty delusional. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's a pretty standard problem. I think it happens with meth really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's mostly from sleep deprivation. And I, you know, I kind of like went over to the you know not well pretty dark side but you kind of get delusions of grandeur and kind of weird mystical delusions and yeah i had to leave i i was you know i was pretty i had to go and uh clean out so what was kind of your break in stand-up well you know i'd been around for a long time and uh and you're I touring would, across the country and yeah but i never had any following you know i would do conan o'brien frequently I right mean, you're I was, always on that and letterman too quite a bit too right yeah four yeah. or five times i think maybe okay. five times total but gotcha. it took me a long time to get on letterman but i was at conan sort of from you know not probably towards the end of the first year the beginning of the second year he was on and became a regular guest but it didn't really garner me a following of any kind but you know i had a certain amount of respect in the business in 95 i did a Half hour HBO special. I did a you know a couple of Comedy Central specials, but I don't. I never really built an audience. So yeah, I was out on the road, but not as anybody, not as a guy who could sell tickets. And I mean, honestly, the it was the podcast that put me on the map with everything. Really, totally. Podcast kind of took you to the next level. Then. Well, yeah. I mean, it brought people in that didn't know who I was. It didn't know I was a comedian. That you know, there was a lot of people that were listening at the beginning when I when I said I was going on tour. They're like, "Well, we should go support him." I'm like, "I don't need support. This is what I do. Right? You know, I know how to do comedy. I, I'm fortunate that I'm okay on these mics as well." But over time, you know, everything came from that. Getting my own show on IFC for four seasons came out of the podcast. It was based on mm. me as a podcaster. Wow. Uh, my ability to sell tickets came out of the podcast. It really all came out of the podcast. And I was in my mid-40s and I'd been doing comedy since I was 22. So, you know, I was out there hammering away a long time. I was always making a living eking by in show business, whether it was through development deals or stand-up in general. But I never, it was always hand-to-mouth for years until Air America and they overpaid all of us. And that was the first time I ever made real money was in 2004. Hmm. 
And then, yeah, but because of the podcast, I was able to build an audience and get these opportunities and, you know, do real specials and all of that. But that's that's how it, it happened. And I was sort of at the end of the rope, at the end of my rope by the time I started the podcast. It was really a Hail Mary pass and something to do because really we had no expectation or, or there was no way to to monetize. Mm-hmm. But we, Brendan and I made a commitment that we would do you know, a show every Monday and Thursday, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And the show evolved over time. It was a different type of show when we started. It's interesting to me to be in your mid forties or in your forties when you finally kind of made it. I mean, was there times you were thinking like, what am I going to do? Like, it's... well, yeah, when I started the podcast, you know, it was like looking, you know, down the barrel of, you know, a life as a, a mid-level headliner, right? Because I'm one of these guys that, you know, I put all my eggs in the stand-up basket. I was never going to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I was never going to write for somebody else. So, and I wasn't, I didn't have much traction as an actor. I never really had representation for very long. You know, I did some things, you know, like I did Mitch Hedberg's movie and, you know, I was always on TV. I had a presence and, and I had some respect within the community. And I was a guy who had you know, been chasing the dream for a long time. And I always was, I think, an original voice, but not a voice that people necessarily liked or thought was entertaining. Mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was something. It was mine. But by, yeah, by the time we started the podcast, I was pretty, I was going through a second divorce. I was pretty broke. I was on the edge of losing everything. And, you know, it was, you know, it was a suicidal time. So, you know, what it's like is that just by the cosmic timing of it all that, you know, we became part of this new medium and it kind of Mm -hmm. grew alongside of us and with us. And we were part of, uh, you know, we were a community at that time, Uh, me and, you know, Kevin Smith, Corolla, yep. Jay Moore, uh, Chris Hardwick, you know, Rogan. I mean, we were all doing each other's shows and, you know, we, we saw it as a community mm-hmm. and we knew that we had to build it. And we, we all had to figure out, you know, how do we, you know, at the beginning we had two advertisers or maybe we had a sex toys. We had Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and we had uh, Audible and we had this coffee company in Wisconsin that used to, <laughs> you know, send us free coffee for ad time when I did the old streaming show. But a lot of us kind of figured out, figured you know, made our way. Uh, but there was definitely a sense of community. So once it started to turn, I was just fortunate because, for some reason, I, I, you know, I can get through on these type of mics. You know, I'm an okay broadcaster, but, but also the whole world of it grew up around us. And the fortunate thing about making it when you're 45 is that I was ready. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? The worst had already happened. Yeah. I had skills. You know, I could, you know, I was, you know, willing to act and, and, and ready for the opportunity. I And I'd been given the opportunities before that I wasn't ready for and they didn't sort of manifest, mm-hmm. you know. And I was certainly ready to uh, to show up as a stand-up and to do my own show and to do whatever was necessary. Because I was, you know, I was hard. I was, you know, I was a pro. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like You're I was- You're ready. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the benefit of of making it when you're older because you have a certain zero fuckness to things mm-hmm. and everything's gravy. I think also too you you really appreciate it at that point in time. It reminds me a lot of like the Steel Panther guys who had been to the scene for years and years and years, and the joke metal band was their throw last ditch effort and yeah. become super fucking huge. They're yeah. the nicest guys and they get how rare that is that they're able to do that. That's right, and you paid your dues. Yes, right. But the but you, and the gratitude is is sort of twofold. I mean, sure you're grateful for yourself and your own success. But you also know that there's plenty of people that have paid their dues yeah. that don't get the break. That's right. Or, or don't make the break. 
for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a hard game. I mean, wrestling's the same way. I mean, you see the you see the the tragedies, mm-hmm. you see the sort of uh disasters of of failed careers of guys who were, you know, have been at something so long that they there was really nothing to go back to. Right. And, and then they've got to figure out how to do that, whatever that's going to be. It's heartbreaking, man. But I mean, those are the dice we roll mm-hmm. and and I think that you have to have this delusion that I don't think is completely conscious. You roll these dice and you get 20 years down the line with something and you realize I've done material about this, that there, whatever plan B, if there ever was one that it was never real because you put all your eggs in this basket, Yeah. but you really believe you're going to make it. So you keep plowing away. And then when it becomes clear, you're not, it's not pretty. And all you can do is keep going. Mm-hmm. It's always sad to see how, how people kind of, uh, peel off yeah they because there's no quitting you just disappear man and then someone sees you and goes like holy shit you're still alive <laughs> yeah and, and that's the best they've got for you you know <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You mentioned a name earlier on that I wanted to touch on. Yeah. It does not get uh, a lot of credit because he was such here and gone as Mitch Hedberg. Mm. You said you did a, a He movie. gets a lot of credit. Well, maybe not as much as I think he should. I don't know. You'd be surprised. Good. There's something about there's something about Mitch in that. Uh, yeah, I knew Mitch. I I did drugs for the the last time. One of the times was with Mitch. You know, there was a series of events that led me to get sober, and I wish he had. Mm-hmm. You he know, passed away from from an overdose from, right? from dope. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. he was you know heavy strung out. But um, but the thing about Mitch is that he's one of the rare comics whose point of view and the way he approached comedy was so specific and so not hinged to um, a time. So, like, Mitch Hedberg records are always discoverable mm-hmm. by young people. Like, you know, you can be you know, a 12-year-old yeah. and someone could turn you on to a Hedberg record <laughs> and it's not going to be like the 80s, it's not going to be like the 90s, he's not going to talk about politics. Yeah. He was a poet. So so the point of view thing and the subject matter is really sort of uh, uh, eternal, it's evergreen. Mm-hmm. So in that way, you know, Mitch is one of the few guys that continues to sell posthumously as a comic Mm -hmm. you know most comedy records you listen to once and it's over or you listen to later and it's like oh boy that was the 80s you know like right but not him man he's like neil young so so i think he gets a lot of respect uh but also he gets new fans Mm -hmm. which is rare because like you said his material is so it's so timeless i got an ant farm those motherfuckers didn't grow shit for me. Exactly. <laughs> right. And kids love that, yeah, man. And yeah. he, it, the fact that he's discoverable in a way that isn't like, you know, this is back in the day or some mm-hmm. shit, I think is really uh, uh, special and unique. There's probably some romanticism about it, too. The same thing with like Randy Rhodes. You hear those first two Aussie records. Sure. And the fact that he passed away so young, it doesn't get any better than that. He never had a chance to right. g- go into his classical music phase or whatever it may be. You know? or, or just get crappy. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's true. I, I think there is a mystique to that, sadly. Yeah. Is it easy for um, a comedian 
to jump into acting because you're a great actor. And I'm it saying took that time. Yeah, I don't know if it's easy. You know, I you know right now you know I kind of function on a not just a bucket list level, but but a level of like there are things that I wanted to do when I was younger mm-hmm. that you know I was not ready for or or able to you know to manifest. Uh, that I have opportunities to do now. So I knew when I got my show on IFC that I was going to have to learn how to act uh, in a TV show. I'd seen other guys of my generation and older who were not great. You know, you watch comedy sitcoms with comedians. That first season is going to be a little little stiff. Right. So by the time, again, it, it has to do with age and having the opportunity as an older guy, I knew that I wasn't going to nail it. That, you know, I could put together this show and, you know, we had not much money and I hired guys that I could afford to write and do that kind of stuff. But I knew as an actor that I was going to have to figure it out Mm -hmm. and that was going to take a couple of seasons. And that's the way it went down. I'd studied some acting when I was in college and some acting later. But again, I never had representation. I didn't go out for many auditions. I had that little part in Almost Famous. And I thought that I was going to, you know, that was going to take off. I I was the lock the gates guy. I was the pissed off promoter motor you know who chased them down in the car and when they broke through the gates in the bus but like that didn't turn into anything you know Cameron Crowe was very supportive but you know it's a few lines in a movie (laughs) right but ultimately a lot of times you see comics that's what they do a few lines in a movie Mm -hmm. and you're like hey that was was his name you know but you know as time went on and I and I got I'm I'm not sure what was it that that kind of was well the the TV show was one thing but then I got asked to do, you know, small parts in movies. I did that little part in The Joker. You know, I had this big movie that was a small movie that became sort of big for a bunch of reasons. This two Leslie movie, that was something. And, you know, I just tried to, you know, challenge myself a bit. Glow was really the bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Is that when I landed Glow, the wrestling show, the female wrestling it's a great show. show. You know, that was a big deal. You know, because, you know, they booked me off a of tape, you know, off a of video. And uh, and it was a it was a big role and it was in it was a character. And I thought that really put me on casting directors radar or showed that I had chops mm-hmm. and I could do it. And from there, you know, other things start to happen. I turned down things. I've done a few little things here and there. And uh, I, I like to act, but I don't live the life of an actor. I don't. The idea of going somewhere for months on end to you know do a movie. Thank God for the podcast and for comedy and what have you, is that, uh, you know, I don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. So unless it's a, like a real amazing breakthrough thing, I, I don't really make myself available for that. Like my questions are, where is it? You know, how long's the shoot? <laughs> yeah. And is it a guy that's not like me? Because I can do me always. And sometimes it's not, I don't mind doing me. Mm-hmm. But the, that movie too, Leslie, is definitely not me. And I challenged myself. So I look forward to acting a bit more if I can, you know, try to take more risks. And I think I should probably uh, engage some sort of coach in some respects so I can kind of build out because I didn't do all the scene study work and all mm-hmm. that other work. And I still think I have a lot to learn there. But, you know, I, I, I would like to try to I'm trying to uh, acquire my best friend's uh, book. He's into it. Mm-hmm. But the writer strike sort of threw a wrench in it mm-hmm. right, and, right, right. and sort of put that together as a film as a producer and direct it hopefully and do a small part in it. I, I, I think I would like to try directing and I think hopefully that'll happen. Did you ever try and do anything with like a, an SNL or anything like that? It seems like it's a comedian. Sure. Of course. I mean, I spent two, three, four, maybe 10 years on this podcast, my podcast talking about my failed audition for SNL. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got, I didn't make it. 
I made it all the way to Lauren's office and then I didn't make it. And I was obsessed with it for years. I, I talked to everybody I talked to from SNL. I talk about my meeting with Lauren. And then finally I, I interviewed Lauren for two episodes. Wow. Uh, you know, and he, you know, and he was gracious and kind of, uh, you know, set me straight on what happened and why it happened and what was what I got wrong in my story about it. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it was just that, look, I didn't have a place for you. Mm. And it was a timing thing. And that was nice. Uh, even if it wasn't true, I'll take it. <laughs> Is there What's the vetting process to audition for SNL? How many levels do you have to go through? Depends who you are. Mm. For me, it was when uh, Norm MacDonald was balking on his contract or whether or not he was going to come back. So the idea was either I'd get a shot at update mm-hmm. or as a, you know, the, a guy six, six, you know, does bits on update. Um, but the process is they saw me at a comedy club and then, you know, uh, then you, if they want to see you again, you, you do a, a screen test at the studio. Most people do characters. I didn't mm-hmm. really have characters. So I did my stand up act. And then if you kind of get through that hurdle, you have a meeting with Lorne and then there's a decision that's made. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. I had the, the same type of thing when I was up for being the host of America's Funniest Videos. Oh, yeah. And it was a long process, you know, six months, eight was months. It before Saget? Uh, no, it was before uh, Alfonso Ribeiro has it now. It was after Tom Bergeron. Is yeah. That, yeah. Didn't Saget have it first? He had it first. Yeah. yeah. So this was years later. Yeah. And it was all the way down to the wire, and I didn't get it to Alfonso Ribeiro, and I was so fucking angry for the longest time. It just weighed on me. And I remember I had Shatner on on Talk Is Jericho, and he yeah. was like, "We were something we were talking about." He said, like, "You can't worry about the gigs you didn't get." If I worried about the gigs I didn't get, I'd drive myself crazy. But it's hard to do, like you said, if you got that close to SNL and it bugged you all that much time. But also, we're you know we're not fundamentally actors or people that are in this process. Yeah. So like these guys have you know they get rejected constantly. Yeah. And you know it's a real ego uh, you know uh, uh, hammer, mm-hmm. but it's part of the job. So, like, if you were in that racket and you were going out for things every week, it would just be another thing you didn't get. Didn't get, right? <laughs> but when you're hanging all your hopes on something or you think it's going to be your big break and it's the one thing you go out for, <laughs> yeah, it's going to fuck you up <laughs> and keep you bitter for a while. Yeah, for a while, right? Yeah. Well, it's good you got to talk to Lauren and at least figure it out, right? Yeah, he gave me two episodes. Like, it was kind of astounding. Like, we, we talked for like an hour, and he's like, did you get enough? And I'm like, well, I wasn't really done, because he had to go somewhere. He's like, well, you come back tomorrow, and we'll talk. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I'll come back. I did uh, MacGruber, yeah. and, and I was talking to Will Forte after the scene was done, and I was I couldn't believe how much Lorne sounds like Dr. Evil. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really does. So as I'm saying this to Will, Will's going, He's giving me the, the stop it, stop it, because I have my mic on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lauren was in Video Village. It's like, Lauren wants to see you. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get fired on my first day. Turns out he wasn't listening. He just had some compliments and some feedback. But I was like, fuck, I'm going to get fired for imitating Lauren Michaels on oh, the set. <laughs> I don't think he would have done that. <laughs> I know, but you never know, right? Sure, right, yeah. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal... And when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you got the glow part, were you a wrestling fan? Did you know anything about glow? 
because that was a great that was a great show. No, I didn't. I wasn't. You know, I I mean, I knew an, uh, enough in a way, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until Brendan introduced right. me to you. And we can talk about that. Your your yeah, AEW experience. You know, like I, wrestling was always you know around. Mm-hmm. Like what I remember most about wrestling when I was a very young kid. You know, probably in fourth or fifth grade, is I would walk down to the drugstore from my house Where? in Albuquerque. Okay. And there was those wrestling magazines. They were always on the rack. I yeah. knew nothing about it, but I just knew it was like bloody guys and unitards. Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> And I was just sort of like, what the fuck is going on? And they were always like next to the True Detective magazine. <laughs> so it was just like guys covered in blood and then bodies. Yeah. But And I knew there was a wrestling at the uh, Civic Auditorium or a Tingley Coliseum. Maybe it was Tingley. Mm-hmm. But they had the local wrestling thing. And I used to remember seeing the guy on Sundays you know, coming live from uh, Tingley Coliseum, yeah. talking to the guys in Unitars, but I never locked in. So when I got the part on Glow, it, you know, I was like, I don't know anything about wrestling. They were like, neither does your character. Hmm. You know, he's a, he's a film director that's kind of down on his luck, and he's been given this opportunity. I'm like, great, then then uh, I can learn that. Mm-hmm. So it really, my experience with wrestling, and I met there a few guys who did the show, mm-hmm. Chavo, you know, was, you know, uh, there and I kind of got some lessons and some history and, uh, but it wasn't until I, I went with Brendan to see you guys that I had any, you know, experience of it. So that was one of your first modern day shows. It was my only show. Only show. Okay. So you never went in Albuquerque ever. No. Ah. And, but I'd see the girls do it and I see them learn it and, you know, I, you know, learning, you know, heel faced and, and sort of uh, K-Fab and all the fucking, you know. the the lingo and and the the game yeah. of it but i was always one of those guys is like what's the point if it's not you know real mm-hmm. but then you know what came to me from talking to you guys and going to see the show was that that's not really what what's going on mm-hmm. you know it's a show and there are you, there are ways scripts can go mm-hmm. and there are ways that you know performers and wrestlers do what they do uh that there's a whole you know kind of uh art form in place that these the wrestling fans you know totally appreciate they're not they don't give a shit about real or not real because a lot of it is real i mean you guys are taking a beating but but i did understand the culture more and i did have a good time at the show i can't say that i'm a regular watcher Mm -hmm. but i i get it because the idea at the time was brandon was trying to get you to find a hobby yeah so you were thinking about wrestling for a bit well now i don't feel totally dumb and i could probably enjoy some wrestling <laughs> yeah yeah every once in a while we still he still does a wrestling show with uh crystal presto mm-hmm. on our bonus material and they'll drag me in to, to you know they'll show me classic clips that to, to ask me what do i think is happening you know what, what was your impressions of being at a live wrestling show well i loved it because you know it just made me appreciate that people who appreciate wrestling it's really not unlike rock and roll or music or a band thing or whatever. Is that it's a lifetime uh, kind of loyalty, mm-hmm. and I really like the fact that you could see people with their kids. You could see people that you know you know played along, and then you know there were celebrities there, and some celebrities get involved, like Hauser, like he seems to be a regular, yeah. <laughs> and that you know there is a spectacle of the whole thing that is uh, kind of all encompassing, and I liked the 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 way. The crowd, you know, knows their part. Yeah, in the in the the whole world of wrestling. And yeah, how they, they, pl- they play along, right? Yeah. They play along, but they, you know, but they do, you know, they they have their guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I just I I felt uh, that I was witnessing something, you know, 
organic and 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 kind of a real engaged community mm-hmm. but, which it is yeah but it's different than a rock show because the crowd plays a part mm-hmm. you know a rock show they're just the audience right i mean they may sing along or hold their lighters up but you know wrestling fans are like they're there to be their role mm-hmm. to play along yeah 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 you, you mentioned rock and roll a few times i know you're a big rock i know you play guitar as well mm-hmm. you get your rocket guitars over here what did you do a year ago or so were you playing with scotty in at some kind of a tribute show or something it was an acdc thing oh yeah or... i used to do that with delray delray that's it yeah yeah with dean and he'd get guys you know real guys come down you know, I think Nikki Six and and Scott Ian and uh, you know he, he there were people coming in and out, but yeah, he used to do this yearly ACDC show, mm-hmm. so I would play on that. Yeah, you know, do a couple tunes. I'm a big Angus fan. Nice, yeah. Of uh, and I've been playing myself. I got a little band together. I do a, every few months. We kind of do a show at Largo where I do comedy. You know, I have a few comics, but we do about you know six or seven covers. You know, of cool. stuff that I like and stuff that I can handle, stuff that's not too hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm an okay guitar player, but I'm limited and I'm not, you know, I don't do enough live performing or enough working out with guys to sort of like master anything too complicated. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting better at playing with people. I played my whole life, but I was never really in bands. It was never the dream. Mm-hmm. But I, I play, and I've always played. So playing with people is relatively new for me. Well, it's funny too because we all have mutual respect for each other. Yeah, you know, comedians for wrestlers, sure. wrestlers for actors, actors for musicians. Yeah, you know, so when you get someone else that can play, it's just another guy to invite to the party. Yeah, you know? no, it's great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of comics that play. Have you ever had uh, Angus on uh, on your no, show? No, Dean has. Yeah, Dean had him on Let There Be Talk. And I actually, you know, I was offered them on that when they were kind of doing that stuff, Brian and Angus. Yeah, Yeah, and I I said, give it to Dean. Let Dean do it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, he's, you know, he does musicians. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if I wanted to do it on Zoom. And you don't always know how much they can talk. I've seen interviews with Angus. (laughs) But I thought it would bring attention to Dino's. Uh, podcast, so I was uh, not that I'm taking any credit, but I thought it was a better fit. No, it's funny because I had them on during that time frame for yeah. Zoom because they couldn't tour, so they were doing more press than they've right. ever done, and that was a perfect example of why Zoom was a godsend at the time. Yeah, because you can't understand what the fuck Angus is saying. Yeah, unless you get into his 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 rhythm, his rhythm. Yeah, and if you, I can watch his lips. Yeah, and also he speaks very slow. Yeah, so that really helped get that interview across. But I had so many people like we couldn't understand a word that either he or Brian were saying. But it's like yeah. just to have them and well, see Brian's them. Scottish, right? Well, uh, Newcastle, which is pretty close. Yeah, and Angus is kind of a hybrid Australian. Yeah, I mean, Scott. I'm a I'm a real like sort of ACDC fan, and it's it, but it's like it's weird. I'm I'm very Bond specific, mm-hmm. and you know I'll go through Back in Black, but my attachment to the records, the Brian records after that, are not that deep, mm-hmm. which is another reason why I thought the interview was not really my bad, right? Because, you know, those first five or six records, I mean, I still listen to them <laughs> totally. Uh, and I love early Angus. And yeah, Angus is pretty solid all the way through. But the production on those records when, you know, they were doing it with the older brother. I mean, it's just so it's just so raw and solid. And it's, I, I love those records. I would go as far as to say there isn't one bad ACDC song sang by Bon Scott. No, never. I think every song on every record is great. Good to great to outstanding. I, how about that that live session at the uh, what is that? Where were they? Not BBC. It was so, Atlanta Records. Atlanta Records. Yeah, that thing is insane. Crab City and Blue. Yeah, <laughs> but they were just like at the peak of their game. Like that yeah. when you really can identify, you know how they play as a live band mm-hmm. and hear how they do that. And even the you know uh, the live one what was the big live one with a whole lot of Rosie. Got uh, uh, if you blood. want blood. If you want blood. Yeah. 
I mean, that thing's insane, mm-hmm. that, uh, the level they were playing at. It's really weird to me, too, because I've got some high-end audio equipment, you know, and I don't spend much money, but I spent money on that. And there are bands I don't really like. I'm not a huge prog rock guy, mm-hmm. you know, but I buy a lot of records, got a few thousand records. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff I haven't listened to, even in my own collection. But I was never like a yes guy. I'm, I'm not that big a Rush guy. I'm, I'm definitely not a Genesis dude. Mm-hmm. You know, King Crimson, you know, I, I've grown to appreciate more, you know, because I like Adrian Ballou a lot mm-hmm. and I talk to him. But what was weird about listening to the records on a, a good system with like Wilson speakers that separates things a little bit. Like I listened to some Yes, and and I was like, oh my god, they're they are, they're a band. Mm-hmm. Like there was something about growing up with Yes songs on the fucking radio, whether you had Jensen triaxles or whatever your fucking car stereo was, which is where we listened to that shit. Mm-hmm. Where it just sounded like a bunch of like overproduced synthesized stuff. But when you listen to it on good equipment and you can really hear the guys playing their instruments, it it brought me a different respect for them. I, I can't say that I love Yes. Or Genesis, but I can hear that they're kind of an amazing band. Right, right, right. Because you can hear them playing with each other. You know, Rush too. So that was a, a big change. You listening to stuff again because some stuff that you grew like I once talked to Fogarty. You know, John, mm-hmm. and I never forget what he said about because I asked him about production because those those fantasy albums that they did, the actual albums. Are, they hold up. I now fantasy. I don't know Credence. what it is. Yeah, oh, yeah, the Credence records. I don't know what it was about those the vinyl that fantasy was using, but I think you could eat off it and mm-hmm. still sound great. The grooves were deep. I don't yeah. know what, but they sound so you know poppy. Uh, you know, not poppy in terms of pop music, but like they're just crisp. Yeah, and the production is so lean. And I listen to these records, and it's like it's amazing now. And I asked Fogarty. I'm like, well, what, what were you thinking in producing rec- those records? Because they all sound, you know, so just, you know, clean. And he goes, well, you know, we we were recording for uh, the AM speaker in the center of a dashboard. <laughs> so, right, you know, yeah. that's like when the when you're singing, you put that out front. When the p- guitar playing, <laughs> you put that True, out True, right, yeah. Totally. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It, but they were recorded like jazz records, you know. Jazz doesn't need no frills. Mm-hmm. You just got to be clean. Yeah. And be great players. Uh, Rich and Bond, uh, uh, th- th- we talk about how he sings. Everything to me that he sings is real. Like he sounds just like a pirate spitting out these lyrics yeah, yeah. of like, you know. Turns out, yeah, how he died, it, it was real. He was pirate. Yeah, he was that wet patch on your yeah. seat. Is it Coca Cola? Like, oh, he's so lascivious. Dirty. Let's take this to, to comedy. Which comedians did you follow, work with, fans of that you felt were, were as real as it gets with what they were doing? Real? Yeah, like they they weren't just doing a routine. Like they were the the the, the characters. Well, there's that, not that many. I mean, I I think that a lot of guys that kind of like level off on a character, uh, whatever that may be, it's definitely the part of them that lives on stage. I, I don't know anybody. I've known a few, mm-hmm. but there's I, I think there's very few guys that are sort of like I'm going to be this character, mm-hmm. and and when they do that, you know that who they are because yeah. they're characters. But a lot of guys sort of evolve this thing. You know, like, you know, you look at somebody like, you know, like Brian Regan, who's a huge act. He's a clean act. But there's really, you know, no one really funnier, like to the point where, like, I remember way back when I was uh, in New York in the late 80s, you know, Bill Hicks had moved to New York for a bit. And, you know, Bill is is pretty real. You know, he was a, a pretty pure comic and his anger, I think, was genuine. And uh, and, you know, he was he was quite. He's really an intelligent guy and he had, you know, a huge set of balls on him. And I think he gets a lot of respect for that. I think people grew to appreciate him more posthumously, but he was a guy that would walk rooms and I don't know if you've listened to him, but he was. Yeah, some of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he had a way. 
but even somebody like him who was really as, you know, kind of angry and as political and as, you know, fuck you-ish as anyone could be, more so than I'd say almost anybody ever, and with intelligence. I mean, when he was in New York, we were hanging out the old improv, the original one, and Regan came in and Bill's like, oh, we gotta go watch Brian. <laughs> you know, like, it, and you watch somebody like Regan, and this is a pure stand-up for, for laughs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he had a way about him. So he he was definitely a pretty pure guy. But in terms of guys who I didn't work with, you know, I think there's a, a vulnerability to Pryor. I think Pryor, you know, at his peak in those first couple of specials, you know, you feel a lot of heart there because he's really talking about his life. Right. So I think it hinges on that. You know, is somebody talking about their life or are they doing jokes mm-hmm. and, or, or are they just talking about uh, things they've seen? But, you know, it was a rare thing with somebody like Pryor where, you know, he's talking about setting himself on fire. Right. Or, or shooting his car or, you know, his dog. But there was a way about it where I think if, if you talk about yourself in, in a real way and elevate it, the comedy out of that, that's where you're going to get a real sense of vulnerability and truth. Uh, whereas I think a lot of comics, you know, are, are you know, you know, even but there are guys that, that aren't talking about deep, dark truths that today are are kind of funny because you kind of believe they're that guy. Mm hmm. You know, like uh, like Segura is kind of that guy. You know, I think Bert's become kind of a caricature of himself. There was a dude named Al Madrigal who doesn't really uh, do as much comedy <laughs> anymore, but he was a great long-form storyteller. I think Maria Bamford is about as good as you get in mm. terms of, you know, honesty and vulnerability and authenticity. And she does just a, a full spectrum of, of voices and characters, but she is... There's nobody really like her, uh, and I think she's kind of a genius with that. Oh, Nate Bargatze, uh, another guy who used to open for me. He's become like the new kind of like clean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but he's he's very true to himself, and he does long-form comedy, and he he, he kills me. He's, he's another one, and he's really having his day. I mean, he's, he's a huge act now. As we start to wind down here, you're mentioning a few things. Is, yeah. there, is there a certain darkness that you need to be a successful comedian, a, a, a dark I, you know, anger? I used to romanticize that, but I don't think it's necessarily true. Mm-hmm. I think that fundamentally a lot of us are guys that you know that never could fit into the working world or to the normie world mm-hmm. or, 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 or have a job. There's a kid right now who works. He, he was an engineer. He was an, uh, Aaron, he was an engineer at Boeing. He was, his dad was a... His, was a I guess an aeronautical engineer and he was an engineer and he decided on doing comedy. He's an Afghani guy, uh, first generation American Afghanistan, Afghani parents, this guy Fahim Anwar. And he's brilliant. He's a very funny guy. Uh, so I think that, you know, you see these guys that make these choices to leave, uh, you know, kind of a pensioned, you know, probably pretty <laughs> lucrative work, right. uh, as somebody at Boeing to do comedy. That means that, you know, there's something in you mm-hmm. that, you know, there's either enough, fuck you and you or just enough self-realization that you know you ain't gonna cut it in the real world that or else you're just this weirdo that's a marginalized character that was always feeling outside of it but i don't know that darkness or anger is necessary Mm -hmm. because i think there's plenty of guys that they may be mentally off but i don't know that anger and a certain amount of darkness is is required required to be funny no but i think being funny is a it's some. It's a. It's it's. It is a defense mechanism that mm-hmm. you evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you still do quite a lot of stand up? Yeah, always. Yeah, yeah like every yeah. every weekend sort of thing. 
Well, I go out here. I'm at the comedy store usually if I'm in town like three days a week. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm trying to work out longer stuff. So I, I, I generally, because of the way I write, which is uh, on stage, I, I do a residency at Dynasty Typewriter, a small theater seats, a couple hundred people. And, you know, most of the people that come know I'm kind of riffing and I'll just start riffing out. So, so you're saying you're working on longer material. How, how do you hone that and shape longer material? Repetition. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I start with a bunch of ideas and I talk them through and I see what lands and I see where things go. Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, you know, is it part of something I've talked about before? I just start to see where the laughs are in the moment. I start to improvise and get new laughs. And then, you know, I, I generally do it by... You know, I record myself all the time, but I don't listen to it a lot. Mm-hmm. So it really is through just what sticks with me and what starts to fit together and what continues to go. I know where things are funny enough, and I know that like eventually they'll tag themselves one night on stage, or maybe a buddy of mine will come up and go like, you know what you should do at, that? at the end of that? I'm like, oh, shit, okay, <laughs> yeah. that's a good idea. I'll take it. So it's like anything, any other type of art where you're so, you're constantly kind of shaping and creating, and then when it's ready, oh, yeah. then you can take it on the road. Is my new, it's my new hit sure. single, my new piece, my yeah, my new hour, my new yeah. bit, yeah, yeah. And and then like usually I'll tour something for a year and a half, and then you know hopefully working towards a special. And generally by the time I you know within a couple of weeks of shooting a special where I need an hour uh, or an hour five, and I'll be working out you know like an hour and a half, hour forty. I'll have to like, what happens is then I've, all of a sudden I got to crunch it down mm-hmm. and, and figure out, you know, what lean it, make it lean, take out redundancy, find some callbacks. But the, it seems that that process, the way I do it by waiting till that last minute to really hone it, it makes it all fresh because I'm taking a sure. lot of things out of sequence and, and figuring out how they all fit together kind of in real time. So you're not tired of the thing yeah. by the time you do the TV thing. It's it's such an interesting world to me, and um, like we last few questions for you. We're talking about podcasting and how you've had fifteen hundred episodes. Yeah. And do you still enjoy? Obviously, you do, or else you wouldn't be doing it. But is it is is it a challenge to find guests twice a week? Because sometimes it is for me. Like, who am I going to get this week? Who's around? Who's available? What can we do? Well, that's a challenge, but I do find that like I, uh, you know, I I am still very engaged with it and it's a big part of my social life mm-hmm. so like i really never know what's going to happen when i talk to somebody because i'm i do it like you're doing it i don't i want it to be a conversation yeah. i get a sense of somebody and then i hope we can just you know take off from there so there is a sort of excitement and uh, a dread that comes not knowing how anything's going to go so it's, it remains engaging and i think that the conversations are are you know they're very candid and they're they're a first experience for both of us so i i do i do ultimately um still love doing it and and feel uh, always anxious and nervous. Yeah, about me too. I'm, yeah, and so that's good. I I do know that I've churned through a lot of people, and we were very you know kind of uh, kind of committed to the idea that we're only going to have people once. But now sort of we're coming around again <laughs> yeah. because it's been twelve years. That's right. Since some of the guests and they've had whole lives since yep. then. So you know it, it remains exciting. But yeah, it is kind of nerve wracking when you're like, am I gonna? Are we going to get guests? Or who is it going to be? But I even get a little sense of, like you said, the, the, the nervousness in a good way. I feel the same way before I do a match or before I play a rock show where you're always a little bit nervous. Like, I, I know it's going to go good, yeah. but there's some some excitement to like, okay, here's the new challenge. Let's do a podcast. Here we go. Yeah. Well, there's that, but there's also some reason there's some part of me that just, as confident as I am, I know on the stand-up stage, it, uh, you know, my confidence is 
you know, I don't get that freaked out before. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a comfort there and I have a comfort here too, but the wild card is who you're going to talk to. So there is some part of me that forgets that I've been doing this for, yeah. you know, over a decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sort of like, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm like, dude, you know what you're going to do. Yeah. But I, that guy, that voice doesn't always show up. Come through, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Last question for you. What's your favorite thing you've ever done from an acting standpoint? Is there a role that stands out to you where you think that was really, really good stuff? Well, sure. You know, I mean, certainly the the character of Sam Sylvia on Glow was was great to sort of dig in and have a memorable character. But I really think that that last that movie I did uh, to Leslie, where, you know, I was a second lead and it was a guy that wasn't like me. And I worked on a, a slight Texas accent and and really had to go against, you know, all of my you know, instincts as Mark Marin to a degree, uh, I thought that I really kind of rose to the occasion because the woman who I was working with, you know, was nominated for Best Actress Award. So I was really with some, you know, uh, some heavy, heavy hitters. hitters. Yeah. And I did a, a couple of scenes with De Niro and the Joker. That was exciting, but I don't know if it really, you know, worked my muscle, <laughs> but but it was really cool. But I think that too, Leslie, you know, really was a, a, a bit of acting. Like I, I almost call myself an actor after that one. How was it working with De Niro though? That must be kind of intimidating. Well, yeah, but, you know, from doing the podcast for as long as right. I have, I mean, I know these people are just people. Yeah. But it was funny, and I've and I've told the story but before, but this character was, he, he, did you see that movie? I didn't see it. Well, he was, uh, you know, he was like a Johnny Carson, a talk show host. Gotcha. And, you know, it's towards the end of the movie, and I, there's no spoilers, the movie's been out for yeah. years, <laughs> yeah. where Joker, you know, they, ha- they he chooses to have him on the show, even though he's this freak. Uh, and you know, ultimately Joker blows his brains out, okay. <laughs> you know, on the show, but I play his producer and I'm wary of Joker. So my role was really just to, you know, walk and talk with Bob to the dressing room, you know, to talk to Joker, to make sure he's going to behave himself. And, you know, it's just me and De Niro talking. It's Bob. Yeah. You got to call him Bob. Right? Uh, right. So, but like, you know, I get there and, you know, I meet De Niro and, Todd Phillips is directing and he's like, well, you want to shoot one? I'm like, sure. So like, I'm all amped up. I've been sitting in my trailer for hours and we launch into the walk and talk and I'm just going right. And then it's like cut. And I'm like, all right, okay. That's, that's pretty good. And I'm kind of waiting for the next take. And I, I see De Niro walk over to Todd, the director, and then go back to his chair. And then Todd Phillips comes up to me and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and Todd goes, Hey man, uh, you're coming in a little hot. <laughs> You know, you're, you know, you know, De Niro's your boss, that character, he's your boss. So, you know, you should defer to him a little bit. I'm like, okay, okay, no problem, no problem. But, you know, you got to appreciate, you know, De Niro, who I'm sure doesn't remember me or my name or anything. He's worked with, you know, a hundred guys that have done the one, two line thing. Yeah. But like he did go to the director and do the note process properly. Like, hey, don't you think uh, like maybe he's coming in a little, you know. Tell the boss to tell you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, it's been great talking to you, man. Thanks for having Total me. Total pleasure, yeah, and uh, hopefully I get to do your show again in a couple of years. And yeah, yeah, your, uh, sure, man. Podcast relationship. Yeah, come man. to a comedy show. I'd love to. Okay, buddy. Do I get free tickets? Sure. Thanks.